Thank you so much for joining us for, for what really is the beginning of, of Easter weekend here and our Good Friday gathering. Um, for the past few weeks as a church family, we've been looking at different attributes and, and aspects of God through a series that we've titled Knowing and Encountering God. And we're going to continue suit with that tonight on, on this Good Friday by taking a look at an aspect of God um, that I think is probably, perhaps, I really do believe that it is one of the most challenging aspects of God. It's God's wrath. And in saying this and talking about God's wrath, I realize that there are a ton of people out there, perhaps some of, some of us are here tonight, um, who really have a hard time believing in a God that does anything other than love and accept everybody. And if that's where you're at, all I'm asking you to do, all I'm inviting you to do tonight through this message is just consider a different perspective. You don't have to agree with anything I say, but I, I, I do think it's wise uh, to be the kind of person who's open to perspectives other than your own. I think that can be a helpful way to navigate life. And uh, what I want you to consider perhaps specifically is that um, a view of God that's just loving, it might actually be missing something that you need as you're navigating a world that's filled with all kinds of injustice and evil. And, and I think, too, the other, the other thing I'd ask you to consider is just asking yourself the question um, if perhaps there's something that you may be forfeiting when it comes to your relationship with, with God and rejecting the belief in God's wrath. And uh, be- before I go any further, I do want to clarify that um, I personally don't see God's wrath as one of his attributes. I think God's wrath is more of his response to a world that's being ripped apart by sin, evil, and injustice. And so in other words, I, I, I think that God's wrath, really what it is it, from my vantage point, is it's his perfect, just opposition to evil and injustice. And I think this is far different than um, any of the angry bouts or spells that I've had. I think it's far different than, than the wrath that I've poured out on people in my life. And um, I guess I'm getting a little personal here. But, but, but most of the time I get angry or I see other people getting angry. I think generally speaking it's because somebody's slighted my pride or like cut my ego to some degree, and that causes me to lose my temper, or somebody didn't live up to an expectation that I had. And and when that happens, most of the time what I end up concluding is that I was completely out of line. And uh, nine times out of ten, I just wish I could, like, walk it all the way back and and, and live that moment differently. Perhaps you can relate with that. um, But what I've really discovered about my own anger and wrath is that most of the time it's, it's completely unjustified, it's uncontrolled, and um, it's, it's outright wounding to the people who've been on the receiving end of it. And I just have to say that that kind of wrath is, is, is offensive, and that kind of behavior is damaging to people. And so if that's where your mind goes when you think of, of God's wrath, I could understand why you, why you would reject the idea of a God who gets angry. But I do think when we talk about God's wrath, or any of his attributes for that matter, I think we should be careful not to project our experiences, our definitions, or our biases onto God. Uh, I I think one of the main issues that perhaps people have when it comes to God's wrath is that we assume God's wrath is just like our own. It's just like our stepdads. It's just like our parents. It's just like our terrible bosses. It's just like the person who, who wounded us. And I think there's a chance that we take issue with God's wrath because we're just simply projecting our past experiences onto God, and we conclude that an angry, an angry God is just not worth believing in. And I think it's also safe to assume 
that most of the anger that we've experienced in our lifetimes was in some way unjustified, it was uncontrolled, and it was unhealthy, meaning it didn't lead to, to justice, it didn't even lead to a wrong being made right, what it led to was deeper wounding. And I'm saying all that to say that God's wrath isn't like that. Um, and there's a German philosopher, his name is uh, by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, and, and um, he, he said something in his work titled Beyond Good and Evil, and I think it highlights the notion that uh, there are, there's a chance that when people respond to the injustice that they see in the world, they, ins- they respond in a way that actually can inflict more wounding than, than healing. And, and what he was arguing in, in this work was that humanity really needed something that was beyond the scope of this simplistic black and white moralizing that people were used to. It needed something more nuanced than just plain good versus evil. Uh, and one, one of the observations he made was that people who fight injustice, they tend to do so in a way that perpetuates injustice. And so he gives this caution. He says, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he doesn't become a monster. Monster. Now, now Nietzsche, I think it's important to note, he was starkly opposed to the, to the idea of God. But what he was saying here, I think, is evidence that what a world riddled with injustice and evil needs... Uh, is, is a response to that injustice and evil that won't leave us more wounded than we already are. And so w- when we think of God's wrath, I think a simple starting point for us should be it's not like ours. It's never unbridled temper. It's never a response to, to his ego or pride being assaulted. It's not like our anger or the anger that's left us wounded. God's wrath is his perfect, just opposition to evil and injustice. And, 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 and I, I just think, I think this is something that you probably want in a God. I think we want a God that has the power and the authority to address all the injustice in this world in a way that brings ultimate justice and resolution. I think we want a God that responds to evil and injustice with righteous anger. If we're, if we're going to re- reject the notion or a notion of God, I don't think it should be a God of wrath. I think we should, we should consider rejecting the idea of a God who in the face of atrocities and injustice and evil just stands to the side or stands off to the, to, to the sideline and, and affirms the basic goodness of the forces causing them rather than responding in a way that stops injustice from claiming another victim. And so tonight what I want to do is lead us in reflecting on the wrath of God as his perfect, just opposition to evil and injustice. And I don't know that there's a better way to do this than by reflecting on the final hours of Jesus' life, specifically the arrest, the conviction, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And my goal tonight is I'd like to show you three things about the wrath of God in light of the cross of Jesus. And I'm hoping to be able to do that in a way that will help us know God more, more, more clearly experience him more deeply. And so those three things that I want to share with you tonight are are that God's wrath is justified, God's wrath is controlled, and God's wrath is completely absorbed through Jesus. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 18. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And here's what it says. It says, After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across, across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers 
and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when he told them, I am he, he stepped back and fell to the ground. They, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, sheathe your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish temple police arrested Jesus and tied him up. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was advantageous that one man should die for the people. So the first thing I want to point out here is that God's wrath is justified. And in what we just read through was an account, it's one of the four accounts of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what, what, what you'll quickly note is that Judas had gone behind Jesus' back and he'd engineered this whole arrest scene. And, and, and the group that he put together included a diverse range of people. And they've all come there wielding weapons and lanterns and with one intent. And these are Jews, they're Gentiles, they're Roman soldiers, they're religious leaders, they're officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. There were, there were religious people there that day, irreligious people there, and they're all corroborating to arrest, convict, and crucify Jesus. And what I think is, is, is extremely noteworthy when you analyze this crowd is that Jewish religious leaders and Roman political le leaders, literally, they never agreed on anything, however they agreed on this. And I think, just as a side note, it's amazing how a common enemy will unite people from starkly contrasting worldviews. And that's what's unfolding. So, so, so I'm saying all this to say when you zoom out, if you take a, a step back and you look at this mob, what it really represents is a cross-section of humanity that's gearing up to unleash their wrath and their anger on Jesus. And so I think the nature of the mob, at least what I'm offering you to consider, is that the nature of the mob, really what it is, is it's an indictment against the entire world. There's this group of people who've come to arrest Jesus, and it includes people of every class, every race, every religion. They're religious, they're irreligious, and they're all there for the same purpose, to arrest Jesus. And so as this is unfolding, I think one of the things that it can, it can help us to see is that we don't just passively disbelieve God. We don't just re resist God. We're, we're, we're actually lethally mad at God as, a, as an entire human race. And, and, and what, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting here is actually it's one of the primary presuppositions of the entire Bible. It's that the natural state of humanity is that enmity or hatred toward God. And what this means um, is that people tend to push back, and, and I, I know I've done this in my life, people tend to push back on anything that threatens their self-sovereignty. The human heart wants more than anything else to be its own master. We want to be in control of our own lives. And anything that's, that threatens our sense of control can trigger us to anger or wrath. And when it comes to Jesus, 
Uh, he, he's a challenging figure because he doesn't just challenge our desire to be in control of our own lives. He actually tells us that we don't have what it takes to master our own lives. And, and what I love about Jesus is he's willing to tell us what no one else will. And, and, and he's willing to tell us the things that we absolutely have no interest in hearing. And what he's telling us um, in a roundabout way here, perhaps, and, some, and sometimes extremely directly, is that the only way to experience life to the fullest, it's not through mastery and power. It's through humility and surrender. And he doesn't give generic ideas about surrender. Jesus actually takes it as far as saying that he's the only one worth surrendering to. He, he explained it to an extent here. It, it's, uh, it's in Mark chapter 8. Verses 35 through 37, here's something that Jesus said. He says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but who, whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he, get, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What, what Jesus is getting at here is that you can't begin to master your own life until you realize that you don't have what it takes to master your own life. The unfortunate reality is we want a God that we can arrest, that we can chain, that we can master. But Jesus isn't that kind of God. And I, and I think it's even a little deeper than that. I think Jesus is saying that full surrender to him is the only way to experience life. That if you actually, if you have any interest in following Jesus, you have to give him full priority in every area of your life. In other words, Jesus gets to tell us, how we're supposed to live. And I think this is one of the lines that tends to trigger us when people cross it. And Jesus doesn't just like toe the line. He crosses it entirely. And he claims that the only way to experience the life that we really want is through surrendering to him. This cuts completely across the, the grain of our individualist ideology or our desire to be in control of our own lives. And because of who Jesus is, he's God incarnate. I think he, more than anyone else, has the ability to trigger the natural opposition we have for anything that's, that threatens our self-sovereignty. The fact that the claims of Jesus are at odds with our natural inclinations, I think that's what makes it impossible to just casually disbelieve Jesus. Now, and now, if you were to examine the entire New Testament and, and you were just taking the time to look at how people respond to Jesus, I, I think what you'll find is that, is that there's never a neutral response. And, and one reason for this is Jesus doesn't really give you, give you any neutral uh, teachings. He never, he never preaches a neutral message about our relationship with God. He never presents our relationship with God as anything less than the most critical relationship you're ever going to have. Now, now, what you will find are accounts of people who listen to Jesus', Jesus teaching and they get absolutely terrified. And they don't, they don't exactly know what to do and so they, they end up just walking away terrified. You'll find people that get so furious and frustrated with Jesus that they actually want to attack him. And that's, that's, that's kind of what's happening at this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, and then you'll find this really peculiar group of people that what they do is they respond to Jesus with complete surrender. They, it's, it's almost like they throw caution to the wind. They abandon everything that they know, and, and they're like running headlong toward Jesus. But, 
but and the reason I think for these three responses, and, and perhaps you'll find more, is that Jesus really never offers anybody the option of responding to responding to him with this casual disbelief. You're not going to find anybody leaning into a teaching of Jesus and them saying, "Wow, that was really really thought provoking." Jesus, I guess I'll go home and maybe consider that. The responses are, are never neutral, and so so um, and I think this is why this mob doesn't just reject Jesus' teaching. They're actually there to arrest, convict, and crucify him. And, what this, what the, and, and maybe you find that to be extreme. And, and one of the reasons perhaps um, we, we find that to be extreme is I think we have an uncanny ability to deny or bridle our anger or hatred toward God. And, and I think one of the ways we do that um, is we create ideas about God. And basically what we do is we create this version of God that we can arrest, we can chain, we can master. We create a God we can master. I think if that's, if that's what we're doing, we do that because we naturally hate the idea of a God that we can't master. Another way we try to arrest, master, or control God is through religion or morality. And, and I think this happens when we find ourselves trying to manipulate God by doing certain things we, f- we feel are morally right. Or we avoid certain things that we are convinced are morally wrong as a means of gaining God's approval and blessing. And, and I think it's real risky to relate to God in this way because it causes a really deep sense of entitlement. And I think entitlement is like a breeding ground for resentment and disappointment. Because all it takes is your life to, 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 to zig where it should have zagged or spiral out of control one time. And, and then you see God through a completely different lens. He's not coming through for you the way that you thought he should, and now you can't, you can't follow him anymore because you feel like you earned your keep with God and he hasn't earned his keep with you. I just want to offer this as something to consider. A God you can control through your good, your, your good works um, is a God we create because we hate, we hate the notion of a God that we can't master, but it's not, it's not the kind of God that our lives demand. It's not the kind of God that a world that's being ripped apart by injustice and evil Needs And so when, when Judas led this mob to arrest Jesus, what it really marked was the beginning of the unjustified, uncontrolled wrath of humanity being fully unleashed on God. And I think the, the response of the mob, what it really represents is the natural inclination of the human heart to anything that challenges our desire for self-sovereignty. And if, if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around the idea that the, the entire human race is naturally inclined to respond to Jesus in this way, regardless of race or class or religion, I think the account of what's happening to Jesus here in this Garden of Gethsemane and what unfolds after that is proof. And, and here's what I think it's proof of. You see, see, Jesus was God incarnate. It was as if God himself, because God himself did come down in Jesus, and for the brief period of time that he was here, he made himself completely vulnerable. And in response to God making himself vulnerable, we arrested him, we convicted him, and we crucified him, even though we had no evidence that he was actually our enemy. And the picture that John paints in these first three verses in chapter 18 of this crowd that's comprised of this cross-section of humanity, I think it shows us that we all had a hand in that. And because of the way we responded to Jesus, God incarnate, God's wrath against humanity, God's wrath against us, is completely justified. But secondly, 
God's wrath is controlled. Pick up with me in verse 4. It says, Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when he told them, I am he, he stepped back and they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right, his right ear. The, man, the slave's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, sheathe your sword. So, so when Jesus was confronted by, the, by Judas and this detachment of Roman soldiers and, and the temple guard, um, what we read is he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that he was destined to face the unbridled, uncontrolled anger and injustice of humanity. He knew the trajectory that he was on, that he'd be tried in this illegal kangaroo court. Um, he knew that he'd be mocked and beaten and crowned with thorns and, and marched through the streets of Jerusalem. He knew he'd be completely humiliated and hung from a Roman cross to die a criminal's death. He knew that the anger, the wrath, and the hatred of humanity would literally crush his body. He knew everything that would happen to him, but what we never see Jesus doing is losing control. He never responds in anger. He simply asks, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And what Jesus says after this, on a surface level, it looks like he's just simply identifying himself. And he's saying, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're looking for. But what he says, there's a depth to it that's a little more powerful in that, um, that, that our English translation really just doesn't capture the essence of. And it's something that, that, that the people there, at least his followers, would have heard him say before. He says, I am. And so if you were to rewind the tape all the way back to that encounter Moses has with the burning bush, and he discovers that he's encountered the living God, um, he, he, go, he, he says, God, who am I supposed to tell your people sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. And this is the same exact response Jesus gave. It's recorded in, in John 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 58, when he was being questioned about who he really was. And, and Jesus ends up telling people, he says, before Abraham was I am. And so everyone knew what it meant when Jesus said I am. It meant that Jesus was making this audacious claim to be God. In a sense, what Jesus was saying is if you've come to arrest Jesus of Nazareth, You've come to arrest God himself. And then something extremely powerful and peculiar happens. It, it's in verse 5. Jesus, I am he, Jesus told them. And then we read, Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. So, so Jesus says, I am, and everyone's knees buckle. They fall to the ground. Even the, 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 uh, the, the calloused, battle-hardened Roman soldiers can't stay on their feet. And for a moment, this entire mob, this perfect de depiction of humanity's unjust anger toward, toward God is absolutely paralyzed by the power and presence of God. Every knee was bowed in the presence of Jesus. And then Jesus asks a second time who they're looking for. And this time he, his response focuses more on the well-being of his followers. He says, I told you I am he, so if you're looking for me, let these men go. And then Peter draws his sword and he, and he starts cutting ears off. Actually, he only cuts one ear off. Um, 
And Jesus immediately, like, he's, he's like, hey, walk that back, cool off. He intervenes and he tells Peter to put his sword away. And with that, what he's starting to paint is this picture of how controlled God's wrath is. From, from, from this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the scene at the cross at Golgotha. There's no struggle when Jesus is arrested and tied up and taken to Annas. Jesus doesn't fight back when he's slapped in the face by the temple police. He doesn't scream for justice when he's, when he's tried as in, a, in an illegal kangaroo court. He doesn't try to defend himself when he's flogged, mocked, humiliated, and sentenced to death by Pilate. All, all because Pilate had succumbed to some like hyper form of political ma manipulation uh, that was brought on by the mob. Jesus didn't respond in anger to the crowd from every walk of life. He didn't get resentful toward his followers who had completely abandoned him. He did none of that. And these were people, these were people who had seen Jesus embrace the people in their communities who had historically been marginalized and rejected. They saw Jesus literally heal people that they cared deeply about. They, they saw Jesus heal people who had suffered from like degenerative diseases over the course of decades. Uh, medical conditions that would have been a life sentence otherwise. They saw how Jesus deeply loved people to the degree that he was willing to prioritize others over his own interests. These are the same people that saw Jesus bring hope and restoration to their very own communities, and now they're mocking Jesus and screaming, crucify him. In hundreds of years prior to this, the prophet Isaiah, uh, he, he kind of is pointing to how Jesus would respond in the face of the uncontrolled, unjustified wrath of humanity. And here's what he said. He said, and he's talking about Jesus. He said, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. I, Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus and these accounts of Jesus' life during the final hours give us a picture of a God whose wrath is completely controlled in the face of unjustified, the unjustified, uncontrolled wrath of humanity. And, and the reason that it's controlled is because God's desire is not that we'd be annihilated by his wrath for what we did to Jesus, but that through Jesus, his wrath would be completely absorbed and we could be reconciled to God. And so what's become abundantly clear, at least to me at this point, is that God's wrath is justified it's controlled, but then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, and I think this is like the heart of the message of Good Friday, God's wrath is completely absorbed through Jesus. And now there are three things that Jesus is going to say as his life is winding down during these final hours, and I think they make this abundantly clear. They make it abundantly clear that God's wrath is completely absorbed through Jesus. The first thing is what he says to Peter immediately after Peter tried to defend him and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Here's what we read. It says, At that, Jesus said to Peter, Sheathe your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? With, with this statement, Jesus starts to show us that the justified, controlled wrath of God is going to be poured out. But it's not going to be poured out on the people who deserve it. It's going to be poured out completely on Jesus. Now, when Jesus mentions the cup that the Father has given him to drink, what he's talking about is God's wrath. 
And in ancient times, criminals were executed by giving them a cup of poison. And all through the Old Testament, God's wrath, his perfect opposition to injustice and evil is, is always depicted. It's primarily depicted as a cup. And this metaphor of a cup was widely understood as a symbol of wrath. And so what Jesus is saying here is actually pretty terrifying on one hand. Because what he's saying is that there's a God and he has a cup, which means that that God is extremely angry. And he's getting ready to respond to all the injustice and evil in the world with his wrath. God's perfect just response to evil and injustice is coming. His controlled wrath is going to address, it's going to completely address this unjustified, uncontrolled wrath of humanity that's being squarely aimed at Jesus. And then on the other hand, what Jesus is saying is that God's wrath isn't going to annihilate the people who deserve it. It's going to address all the injustice and all the, all the evil in the world in a way that brings forth absolute justice to the world. Now, th th there's another thing that I think is really important to understand here. Um, Jesus says, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given to me. And I think it's important that we know what he's talking about when he says that word Father, that, that, that the cup is something that's being given to him by the Father. When, when Jesus refers to God as Father, this is an expression of a God whose primary characteristic is love. He's talking about a loving, affectionate, patient God. He's talking about a God who's so deeply involved and committed to people that he can't let injustice and evil have the final word in their lives. And so when Jesus uses the phrase, the cup of the Father, what he's doing is he's combining two things that seem so antithetical to one another. He's combining the wrath of God, God's perfect, just response to injustice and evil, and he's combining the love of God all at once. And I think this is extremely hard to reconcile. Like, like, how could it be that a loving, patient, affectionate God would have a cup of wrath? And, and why would he want to give that to anybody? And I think it's, it, it's relatively easy to view wrath and love as entirely incompatible. And, and kind of go down the road of, if God is so loving, then, then there'd be no wrath. And, or you go down the road and you say, if he's a God of wrath, there's no way that he can be as loving as people make him out to be. Some people think that God can either be a God of love or he can be a God of wrath. He can't be both. But when Jesus said that he himself is destined to absorb the wrath of the Father, I think what he's telling us is that, that God's both. And another person who understood God this way is uh, he, he's a, a theologian um, from Yale, and his name's Miroslav Volf. He was born in Croatia. And he lived through some pretty atrocious times of like ethnic cleansing and war in what is the former Yugoslavia. And um, that was a time that really challenged his own beliefs about God. And one of the core beliefs he had is that wrath and anger were far beneath the God that he believed in. That a wrathful God was just frankly barbaric. But, but, but something, some, there's something about uh, witnessing unbridled injustice and evil, at least for him. He had, he had witnessed the horrors of genocide that really had a profound impact on his view of God. And here's a conclusion that he made. He said, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. 
According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? And then here's what he says next. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I'd have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And what he's saying here is that because God is love, he responds to injustice and evil with wrath. But the way that he does it doesn't just bring some like, you know, generic form of justice. What it brings is a fuller expression of his love. And I think this is the kind of God a world riddled with injustice and evil needs. It needs, a, it needs the kind of God who is so loving that he's willing to enter the evil and injustice in a way that puts an end to its control in our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. In drinking the cup of the Father, Jesus is bringing together the wrath of God and the love of God. He's bringing together the highest judgment and the richest love, and he's going to do so by allowing himself to be arrested, convicted, and crucified. And, com- and, and, and when he does that, he's going to completely absorb the wrath of God. And so from here, things escalate pretty quickly after Jesus is arrested. He's bound and he's put on trial in a way that was entirely illegal. First off, the trial was private, it took place at night, and it didn't include any witnesses. Now, now, now in a formal Jewish hearing during the first century, it would have been illegal to question the defendant. But that's exactly what they did. The only one ever questioned was Jesus. A, A case during that time had to rest entirely on the weight of the testimony of witnesses. And there were, there were no witnesses in the trial of Jesus. There was no hard evidence. And Jesus' death sentence was delivered by Pontius Pilate because of some form of political manipulation that he succumbed to. When the, when the Roman governor, when he, as the Roman governor, found no reason to execute Jesus, here's what the mob started to say. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And, and, and this, this is the statement. This is the statement that Pilate heard, and when he heard it, he realized that he had no out, that he'd be committing career suicide, and it probably would have cost him his, his life if he let Jesus go. And so he hands Jesus over to be crucified. And I'm not arguing in favor of Pontius Pilate. I'm not giving him an out. I'm just asking you to see the tension the man was managing. And so he hands Jesus over to be crucified and I want you to turn with me to John 19. I'm going I'm to read verse, verse 16. And here's what it says. It says, Therefore they took Jesus away. Carrying his own cross, he went out to what is called Skull Place, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. Now, now this path from where Jesus was to Golgotha would have put him at eye level with every single one of his accusers. 
with people of all ages and stages of life, people of all races and classes. It would have put him at eye level with, with the religious, the irreligious. It would have put him at eye level with everyone who, who had showed up that day for one purpose, to see Jesus be utterly humiliated. And there, there, was, no, there was no way Jesus could have avoided being, being picked out of a lineup, even though he had been beaten beyond recognition. And here's why. Pilate had a sign lettered, and he put it on Jesus' cross, and here's what it read. Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And the sign wasn't just written in one language. It was literally written in every language of the world at that time. It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that the entire world could see it. And so that's, that's kind of the backdrop. But the, but, the, but the next thing Jesus says to make it clear that he's fully absorbing the wrath of God is what he says once he's at Golgotha and he's hanging from that 80-pound 80 80 Roman crossbar with nails in his hands and feet. A crown of thorns around his head, and he's surrounded. He's being swarmed by the unjustified, uncontrolled wrath of humanity. And he doesn't hurl insults. He doesn't demand that the violence stop. What he does is so radically different than, than our natural tendency. He speaks out on behalf of the rulers that are sneering at him, his enemies that are trying to silence him, the soldiers that are carrying out the execution, and this crowd that's directing all their hatred, anger, and violence toward him. He even speaks out on behalf of his followers who'd abandoned him. And he says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Now, when Jesus says forgive them, he's making it clear that he's going to fully absorb the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus is allowing the wrath that we deserve to be completely poured out on himself. And what we need to see clearly here is that Jesus didn't do that out of some form of obligation. He's allowing himself to fully absorb the wrath of God out of his pure love for us. And because of the way that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God fully and completely, he was able to make one final statement as he hung there from that cross. The last thing that we would have heard Jesus say if we were there is, It is finished. It is finished. And this wasn't a cry of defeat. This was a proclamation that God was perfectly, justly dealing with evil and injustice once and for all through the death of Jesus. It was the most powerful expression of God's love for the very people who are deserving of God's wrath. It's a promise that one day all the injustice and all the evil in the world will be fully resolved. Look, on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of the Father that we deserved. And when, when we start to realize that we deserve the wrath of God for our own unjustified, uncontrolled anger toward, toward God, and we begin to, to realize that, that Jesus fully absorbed the wrath that we deserved on the cross, that he, that he wasn't just suffering the pain of nails in his hands and nails in his feet or, or a crown of thorns in his forehead. He was absorbing the wrath of God. I think when we, be, when we come to the realization that he was doing that, not out of some weird obligation to us, but out of his pure love for us, we'll begin to experience the love of God more fully. Seeing how Jesus 
somehow reconciles, the, reconciles these two antithetical things, somehow fully fulfills the wrath of God and fully displays the love of God all at the same time. I think that has the power to humble us out of our own anger and our own angst. I think that has the power to affirm us out of the fear that plagues our lives. And I think it's what we need to focus our gaze on if we want to know God more fully. Now, now before, before we end our time together tonight, um, we're, we're going to do something together. And what we're going to do together is celebrate communion. And we've, we've put, um, we've put some, some elements on, on each of the seats, so you should have access to everything that you need. But before we do that, I just want to say that communion, what it really is, um, and this is my distilled definition of it, what it really is is it's, it's a time when followers of Jesus sit still and, and they allow themselves to be brought into this narrative of Jesus' crucifixion. They allow themselves to identify with Jesus' broken body by breaking bread together. And they allow themselves to identify with the poured out shed blood of Jesus by drinking juice together. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we just want to invite you to do that with us tonight. Just sit still with God and lean in to, to, to the fact that he, out of his great love for you, allowed his wrath to be poured out on himself. And so on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take it and eat it. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant established by my blood. Take it and drink it. Let's take the cup together. And after, after Jesus and his followers did that together, he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what you're doing in doing that is proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns. So thanks for joining, joining us for communion tonight. I'm going to pray, and then during this last song, we would just encourage you to, to sit, with, sit with God, get quiet before God, and reflect on his great love for you. So God... Um, God, we're thankful that, that you're the kind of God that <clears throat> you identify so closely with your people that you're willing to come down here and make yourself vulnerable, that you're willing to um, put yourself under the pressures of life the way that Jesus did. Um, you're willing to experience the pain and the anguish of what it's like to be human. And you were able to do that in a way that was absolutely perfect. We're thankful for that, Jesus. And we're thankful that um, you never respond to us with, with unbridled, uncontrolled anger. And we're thankful that your wrath, what it is, is it's really your, your earnest desire to set the record straight, to bring forth pure justice, to bring, to bring forth uh, life as you always intended it to be. And we're thankful for that, God. We're thankful that that your wrath is your just, perfect response to evil, to injustice, to the sin that 
that so easily sets us back and, 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 and just destroys our lives. We're thankful for that, God, that your wrath is a, is a response to that that can set the record straight. But ultimately, we're thankful for the, the great love that you poured out on people like us through, through the death of your son, Jesus. God, help us to see that more clearly than we ever had. Help us to dwell on your perfect love for us and help us to live our lives out of that. In your holy name, amen.